Broadcasting from the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire, welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. All right, Stomp. Yeah, well, are you still sick? I. We all want to know. I think. I think the answer would be uh, yes. Yes and no. It's like I've just got that nagging damn cough, and I'm just tired as hell, too. man. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. The fatigue's kind of gone away from me. I've been running, doing a little bit of stuff, but the cough is still there. And especially like I'm talking all day at work, and then I hop on the podcast. I'm just not going to be hacking up a lung, so I apologize ahead of time. <laughs> well, same here. Crazy, but I, I hear you about the uh, the energy level. I haven't let it stop me, but. I mean, like today I'm at, I'm home and I took two naps. Like, how ridiculous is that? One at eleven and then one at like three. It's just really weird. Really weird. Yeah, I always figured like you wouldn't start napping and see getting into like late sixties, early seventies. But mm-hmm. yeah, well, hopefully you'll feel better soon. But I did actually last week you gave me a homework assignment and I, I have to thank you because I watched that documentary it wasn't as a matter of fact on the show notes I said it was on Netflix but it was actually on Amazon Prime oh, okay. but the uh, the Burton documentary yeah yeah uh, Dear Rider yeah so good wasn't it great really cool yeah it was just like talk about catching lightning in a bottle like he just timed it perfectly and it just took off yeah he sure did and he was such a driven person in his life and so positive up until when he wasn't so positive that was I was talking to my friend the other day about it it's just like he got to that point where he was battling so much illness that he just got tired and he just sort of he just sort of let go of the reins but uh, what a great documentary and I think it's it's accessible for anybody that even if you're not a snowboarder it's just a great um, documentary yeah, these, these like company founders are interesting. Like I work for a large tech company and the founder of my company is now the CEO. So he went from like a college professor at MIT, him and this other guy had like this crazy idea about scaling up the internet. Now the company is like a $5 billion company and he's a CEO and he is just as passionate about it now as he was like 20 years ago, 25 years ago. But I don't know how... You know, after you've been successful like that, I don't know how you can hold on to that sort of energy level and that that drive for that long. So Burton, I mean, you have a good run, but eventually you just it becomes too much. Yeah, yeah. I was actually wondering what they're doing now. The, the company still seems pretty successful, and obviously the uh, yeah. they had quite a team to keep it going. Yeah. Did you ever back? I was looking at like the very early snowboards. That was what interests me the most. The ones that had like the the ropes attached to the front of them. Did you ever use I, one of those? Or I did. Yeah, I that was one of my first boards. Actually, incredible, so bizarre. And, and then from there, and those like metal like fins on the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It had like um, you know like Phillips head bolts holding on these two little metal bars in the back, and they sucked. They actually sort of limited your mobility in terms of uh, turning. So once they got rid of those um, and went to the edges, it was so much better. Just so yeah, much uh, freer. But yeah, crazy. But I did see you you got out there on the snowboard, so you must have been inspired to get, get out there and, and do some snowboarding. Yeah, well, oh, back then? Or no, now? no, I saw you just recently, right? Oh, yeah, you know, it's this funny. Week, it's wanna... like, um, I think it was about 37 years ago, um, I started riding, and I met this kid named John Bella, who I went to high school with, and uh, it was his 50th on Valentine's Day, so just, just what, two days ago now, or yesterday? Was it yesterday? Anyway, yeah, we yeah. met up for his 50th, and um, just ripped it on uh, the mountain all day. It was so, so great, and I hadn't been on a board for literally decades but you know the anxiety level of strapping into a board going up the lift and like holy shit this is either going to go really well or really bad and it was the it was the bicycle phenomena it was just like i hadn't stopped for a day it was amazing yeah i mean that's all how it is with skiing too all the time like i'll go periods where i'll go a year or two without skiing and it's just it takes you five minutes to get back into it. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happened. It, you know, the conditions were perfect. It was a little cold. Um, you know, it's just it was just a good day. Good to get out. Happy birthday to John. 
Um, it was funny. I had this 140 snowboard to 140 centimeters that um, Alvaro and Susie Marks just sort of handed down to me. I think at the time they gave it to me because um, of my daughters. And, uh, you know, it was there. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to use that. That tutti frutti snowboard <laughs> instead of renting some legit like longer board. And dude, right. we are we're in the the lines at times, and the looks I was getting because I had my full camel like Gore Tex pants on and my B eighteen oh, bomber jacket, and I'm holding this teal one forty snowboard. I mean, people were just giving me the look of death, like who the hell is this freak? Uh, who somebody <laughs> fell out of the hot tub time machine? <laughs> Dude, it was so funny. Like these young, these young adolescent Chinese uh, women were looking at me and just giggling, like they just couldn't process the whole uh, aesthetic. <laughs> well, no, you know what the nice thing is is no one's going to call you a Jerry, right? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Oh, oh anyway, man. But, uh, all right, I got a merch update. But do you have a, you anything else you want to cover? No, no. Moving on. No. Yeah, I'm all excited right. about so, the merch. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of an update. So I've been like kicking around with merchandise and um, I was asking around with a few people and um, it seems like there's like two paths that you can go with this merchandise. One is like you can start, you can build a storefront and just, you know, drop your design on there and then people can just buy stuff. Problem is, is that the t-shirts and hats and all that, are, the quality doesn't look very good. Like I would want to get wicking t-shirts so that you can oh, wear them sure. when you're hiking and stuff like that. Yeah. So I looked up another, um, another site that actually gives you the opportunity to buy like nice shirts. So you can like put your logo and gear on like Nike or new balance or, you know, those types of, um, t-shirts. And then uh-huh. I'm also looking at like the sort of the three, uh, the quarter zip long sleeve shirts, as well and then hats mm-hmm. and then stickers so cool i think i've settled on the idea that i'm gonna solicit a pre-order through the facebook page the instagram and you know just do the show notes and we'll have a link on our website as well to just do a sort of a pre-order get everybody's interest no one will have to float money ahead of time and i'll just get sort of a list of who wants t-shirts who wants long sleeve shirts mm-hmm. and then we'll get some pricing you know i don't think they're going to be super cheap but We'll get some logos put on there, and we'll get a nice design going. So once I have the final design done, I will put some pictures up, and then we'll solicit um, T-shirts. And I'll probably do it the same way. Like the the owners of the Terrifying 25 group, they basically did – they solicited, like, who wants to order shirts, and they just had people email the sizes and what they wanted. Okay. And then they just ordered based on that and then collected the money when the items came in. So that's what – what we'll do as opposed to like a passive vendor that does everything for you they ship it like what cafe press in one of those places yeah yeah the problem is it's like there's no way to get really quality shirts it's like just it's like hanes t-shirts when you do that so yeah Yeah, um, got it so anyway but that's the latest so i will get the design done this week and then we'll start messaging like uh next next week yeah. or the week after we'll start it. you can have your uh have stuff ready for the spring yeah your intern can uh <laughs> take care of the mailing <laughs> right exactly <laughs> exactly so oh, that's um, great. all right we got to do the show intro but the i guess there's a couple of other notes here so you had something about snowmobile updates you know you oh want man to it's been anything? nuts out there just really i don't just quickly um there was a super melt um over the last several days so they couldn't get out and groom so that created just uh it's it, like imagine a frozen ocean of divots just like you're constantly riding up and down these divots and then it was followed by a freeze so it's been rough out there lots of crashes and things i think we have a story to talk about later but uh it's been fun you know um I, I actually got a um, a bachelorette party showed up one morning at nine thirty in the morning. They they all came out of a stretch limousine, so I had oh a tour, I had a tour around like a dozen uh, women for this party. It was so funny. You could tell they were a little ragged from the night before. Um, Did you all give them breathalyzer tests? <laughs> that would have been indicated, I think, for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been going good. So. Hopefully, see you out there. The season's getting short. Yeah. I know, I know. I got to get something going. I've been uh, been slacking. COVID screwed me up, but yeah, I'll get something booked soon. Well, yeah, um, again, like it, two inches of rain too. It's like yeah, tonight, it's gonna warm up tomorrow. Who knows? But 
Yeah, yeah it's it's not not great this year. But uh, all right, then I have here a hiking pole um, survey. So I know we got a pretty good response now. Um, do you, are we still soliciting some survey people? I would just mention it one more time. You know. Uh, people, if you can get to the show notes uh, from the prior episode and this episode, um, do that. We have, you know, a modest amount of um, input from different folks, but it would be really great to have some more people uh, put in the questionnaire answers and do that balance test. You know, I think this will probably be the last time that we uh, mention it. Okay. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add this to the show notes. And then before the last thing that I have in my notes here, and I think I, you put this down is we cannot screw this one up. Like this is a one and done episode. It is Wednesday. <laughs> it's Wednesday. The, what is this? The 16th. And this episode goes out on the eighth. This is the tightest we've ever, ever been. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I apologize. I'm just sort of beat. I'm literally beat. But uh, we'll get this edited and get it out. So the oh pros God, and cons. I'm just double checking. I like. I like I'm the double fact. checking to make sure my audio is recording here. Is it? It is. Yeah. Oh, good. Thank God. So yeah, like, like when we first started, we had a good buffer of several episodes, but now it's like boom, 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 boom. But I actually like the fact that it's closer because it's more like in real time and just accurate to news events and things like that. <laughs> but it's tough for us in terms of turning it around. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got some guests coming up, so we're gonna we'll build a little buffer back because I think we've got Jill and Carter coming on. We're gonna do a show about hiking with kids, and then um, I just exchanged some uh, some communications with Dave Dillon, who has a, po- a pretty popular podcast on YouTube. So we're gonna do like a cross um, sort of a cross promotion show, and then I got to get Stash on from the the Catskills podcast, and then I think we want to get another round done with Martin. So we got a bunch of guests coming up that that we'll we'll get in yeah absolutely now for donations we have um uh shandy donated five thank you shandy that's very much appreciated and we always like to plug our sponsor at reckless brewing where you'll enjoy the best food craft beer and fun just 15 minutes from franconia notch the 4k footers and less than 10 minutes from the five corners and i've been plugging them to every single person that i guide on that snowmobile i'm like dude if you're if you're gonna go to lunch you gotta go to reckless it's like literally down the street so they're coming from uh the snowmobile world as well awesome so i gotta i'm gonna add this to the show notes as well um so reckless posted a little plug about a um do you know do you have in your towns like you know those little like libraries where people will just they'll make like a little like mailbox and then they put books in there and it's like a free library that you can yeah. you can pull stuff up yeah so Bethle- bethlehem new hampshire has a library but it's a hiking library so you can sign up to be part of this library and what it is is it's like a um it's like a shed that has all hiking equipment. Amazing. So you sign up as a member of um, this library, and it is called the Gear Library. So it has like all the stuff you need from snowshoes, micro spikes. I'm assuming there's like backpacks and stuff in there. I don't really know mm-hmm. all the details, but they have this whole shed full of like snowshoes and and all kinds of hiking equipment and it looks pretty awesome that's such a great idea it's so old school like back to the library i miss the libraries i've seen a few around but uh man they're rare yeah yeah it's such a great idea and i think that i i hear so many people bitching and complaining about like oh you know post holes this that or the other so now if you're on that side of the state like you have no excuse you can just go get snowshoes Mm mm-hmm so, but I will. Um, I'll put a put a plug in the show notes for it. Yeah, I'm. I'm wondering if they're uh, taking donations. I'm sure they are. Yeah, somebody. I don't know who donated all this stuff, but like they have boxes of like micro spikes and snowshoes in there. So it's pretty right. cool. That's cool. I just hope nobody screws it up, like uh, and starts stealing stuff or whatever. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Ready for the show summary stomp? Let's go. All right, so welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. Tonight, we are going to review one of the more remote peaks of the New Hampshire 4,000 footer list, Mount Isolation. So we're going to do a deep dive on isolation. So Stomp and I have hiked this peak together in the past, so we will discuss route planning, 
best seasons to go and all the details that you need to plan an epic hike on isolation. We've also packaged in a little bit of White Mountain history and a little bit more of a deep dive on the Montalban Range where the Mount Isolation is located. So later in the show, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about New Hampshire history and then close out with some recent search and rescue news. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Let's get started. Let's get it started. Did you... um? <laughs> Have anything to drink? Yeah, I'm making a, uh, or making, I made a uh, little margarita from leftovers from when my uh, folks were squatting with us this past summer. And then with a little splash of cranberry and apple juice. So it's very nice. Awesome. Very nice. How about you? Cool. I'm sort of on the same theme of a cocktail. I am drinking a, it's from Doghead Distilling Company. Mm-hmm. And it's a culinary crafter cocktail, which is a vodka crush. Oh, nice. Blood orange and mango. So is it one of those so, low calorie type of things? Looks- no, I think it's a I think it's a regular calorie thing. <laughs> regular calorie. Yeah. High cal. High test. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a little it's dainty but stiff, I guess is the way to say it. <laughs> oh, those are nice. <laughs> it's not bad. It's not bad. It's like a. Um, is it fizzy? It's like a. It's not really. It's yeah. a little bit fizzy, but it's like a. Um, <laughs> it's like a truly, but with alcohol in it. Real, real alcohol. In gotcha. It, so. Cool. Um, all right. Any recent hikes for you? Yeah, man. Last week I made it up Plymouth Mountain. I had some time to kill, so um, I went up the uh, western side, which is near Hebron. Or Hebron, that's another pronunciation for us to figure out. And um, broke snow for a couple hours, a couple miles up. And uh, God, it was it was a lot of work, but I took my time. Snowshoes the whole way out and back. Eight inches of snow with like a two inch crusty surface. But it's just such a great way to get up to Plymouth Mountain. And when you get up to the top of Plymouth, you can see a northeastern view so you get to see uh pretty much from Musalak all the way over to say Chikora of the Sandwich Range awesome 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 hike and nobody had come up from the other uh Plymouth side that I could see no tracks so it was just me myself and the mountain it's perfect have you been out I haven't been out um since I did the Hancocks but I am getting out this weekend, I was originally going to do an overnight with my friend Tom, but I think that that's kind of gotten screwed up because my my wife and the kids are going down to Florida, so i got to be the taxi service to get them to Logan Airport. So I don't think I'm going to be able to do an overnight, but huh. I'm going to get out either on Saturday or Monday, and I'm thinking that I think Tom needs like middle and south Carter for his 4,000-footer, so I think that we're going to do something like Mount Height Ooh. and then over to middle and south and then do some kind of a loop over there i'm gonna see if he wants to go on saturday to do a day hike if that doesn't work then i'll get out on monday thanks for reminding me about mountain height because my wife and i have a, a random day together and we're we're busting brains trying to figure out what to do and mount height is like one of those peaks that are on my humongous top five list my top five list is actually like 50 peaks but <laughs> yeah you're right <laughs> mount height is phenomenal yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think we we may do that. And then I don't know if Tom can't, if I can't work out my schedule with Tom, then maybe on Monday, depending on how the weather is, I might do something big like Madison and Adams or something. So if you're in those areas uh, over the weekend, take a look. Maybe I'll be out there. I don't know. <laughs> nice. Sounds good. Okay. We ready to talk about mono isolation? Yeah, man. This is a beauty. Good pick. All right. So this is where you're going to drop in the slasher. Topic of the week. <laughs> Hiking topic of the week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Slasher's Hiking Topic of the Week. Um, so I picked this as a as a topic for us to cover, Stomp, because Mount Isolation is sort of like part of our origin story. So I think in the past we've covered a little bit about how we got to know each other. So mm-hmm. Stomp and I, I think I randomly reached out to him, or maybe I posted that I needed a ride on the Mount Washington Road Race Forum way back, probably 10, 15 years ago yeah. now. And Stomp and Mrs. Stomp gave me a ride down and we got to be friendly. I think we did another race after that. And then at some point, 
I don't know what it, you would probably know better than I would. Like you reached out to me and was like, you were like, hey, we're going. Me and Chaka are going hiking. Do you want to join us? I, I don't even remember how that happened. I think. I think I did a solo hike in the winter on Lafayette, maybe posted a couple of pictures. And I think after that, you you had reached out and you were like, hey, we're going hiking. Do you want to join us? Mm-hmm. So I think that was what happened. And then that's where I met Jimmy Chaga because you guys were friends over social media or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, me and Stomp and Jimmy Chaga did this like epic day hike up Glen up Boulder. Glen Boulder down the Davis path to isolation. And then I think after that is where, you know, we became probably closer friends. And then also you introduced me to a bunch of people through social media, many of whom have already been guests on this show. So that's sort of the the history of how we are connected. Yeah. That, that makes sense actually. Cause that was the time when my wife and I were really blasting out the 48 and um, that's how I met Jimmy and several other people. And uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and it's crazy how quickly it's gone by. I think that was like five years ago. So I got some pictures of that hike, um, and we hit it on like the most amazing day. So I've got some pictures and video of that hike that I can put up on the show notes as well. But Mm -hmm. um, tonight we wanted to just do a breakdown of Mount Isolation because I think uh, a lot of people save Mount Isolation on when they're doing the 4,000-foot list towards like the end because they're not sure about what the best route is. There's water crossings and, you know, the, the distance is intimidating. So we wanted to break down in some detail about like the ru- the routes that you can you can take and a little bit about like what our preferred approach is for isolation. So I guess before we get into the specifics of the hike on the isolation, I did want to weave in a little bit of history and talk about the general region because I think one of the call outs that I'll make on hiking isolation is that it isn't in the area of the White Mountains, which is called the Montalban Range. And I'm sure that I've pronounced this incorrectly, so I'm, I'll be hearing from Al and a few other people about pronunciation. But Montalban Range is where it's located. And Montalban is simply a Latin version of describing um, the area as white. I think it's white, white mountains. So, Mount, um, so this, Mount as in mountain. Yeah. Yeah, Perhaps. I guess. I'm not sure, um, but it's it stands for white, I think, or white mountains. Um, but the area is, everybody thinks of isolation, but there's a lot of peaks in this area. And if you do the 52 with a view list, you'll be much more familiar with this area than you would if you're just doing the 4,000 footers. But like Mount Parker, Mount Stairs, Crawford, Resolution, Mount Langdon. Blows me away. It's amazing. Um, Cave Mountain. What's that? It blows me away how many uh, mountains there are connected to this peak. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This whole range is just um, awesome. And it's it's one of those areas where if you're looking to hike in locations where there's not going to be that big of crowds, like it's a really good option to hike any of these. But the, you know, the, the area is also unique just because it has – you know, it has, it's not a single approach. So most people will approach this range from a bunch of different areas. So you, from Route 16, you get over to isolation. And then most of the other peaks on the Montalban range, you'll hit from 302, um, either up by the Davis Path, or you can get in from Bartlett in that area. There's a number of trailheads like Mount Langdon Trailhead is probably the one that that stands out. But often people are not familiar with the range. They don't realize that isolation is clustered with all these other peaks until they start hiking the 52 with a view list because there's so many peaks that are well represented on the 52 with a view list from the Montalban range. And the other thing about this range is that this is also where the Davis Path travels um, and it's now the start of the Cohos Trail. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so... There's a lot going on there, mm-hmm. and the range was actually, from a historical perspective, it was named by a, a gentleman by the name of Moses Sweetster, who was known as an early writer of Mount Washington guides. So he was like, um, the guy was from Newburyport, so he's from my area. Mm-hmm. And he was a prolific writer of, I guess, biographies of famous artists. So um, in addition to that, he had a side gig where he would... Um, write White Mountain Guides. So he wrote like one of the definitive early White Mountain Guides in 1876. Interesting. And 
Yeah, yeah, he's guys from New Report. He's like he like sort of had my. He's got the same geographical like travels as me because he's New Report. Then he was spent a lot of time in Western Maine as part of his White Mountain Guide. He actually does a section on Pleasant Mountain in um, in Denmark, which which is like one of my local mountains. Now, does he have any? Did his work lend into some of the AMC books? I'm assuming. I mean, it's all around the same time. Hmm. You know, so um, I think... Sweetster. He had... Yeah, Moses Sweetster. So I don't really know if he was connected to the AMC, but I know he um, he labeled the range in 1876, and then there is a... It's called The Guide to the White Mountains that was published in 1918. And I actually... You can look it up on Google Books, and he has, like, descriptions of all the mountain rangers that we're all familiar with. So mm-hmm. spellings are a little bit off in some of them, but it's it's pretty interesting that this guy was out there. Wow. Cool. And then um, a little bit about Mount Isolation specifically. Isolation is the northernmost peak in the Montalban Range. Uh, Isolation was specifically named by William Pickering. So Pickering was an uh, astronomer who worked on early astronomical observation stations and was a professor at MIT and Harvard. Mm-hmm. And this guy discovered a bunch of moons, and I think he was one of the early people to discover the rings around Saturn. And he did this like mathematical calculation after, I guess he discovered, uh, he didn't discover, but he did a mathematical calculation based on Neptune and Uranus. And he was like, there has to be another planet out there because of the way that these planets are behaving at certain times. So he, yeah. he predicted Pluto. He didn't discover it, but he predicted that it would exist. Um, <laughs> Pioneer. Yeah. And, wow. Yeah, yeah. So William Pickering. And then his brother was the founder of the AMC. So uh, William was like pretty active in the club. And then I'm assuming because he was an astronomer, he probably liked to go up to the White Mountains to get views of all the, the stars and you know, it must have been amazing back then. Mm-hmm. And he, this guy, William Pickering, was known as an early map maker. So he published a contour map of the region in 1882. And from what I read, this guy was one of the first ones to use that gridding system. You know that gridding system on maps where you have like the letters on one side oh, sure. and then the numbers on the other? Absolutely, which is used today. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So he was like, I think, one of the the early people to use that gridding system mm. so that you could easily sort of break down a map to say like, oh, yeah, this is in B3. Right. And then you can get a map of that specific section. That's generally how they do it uh, today, uh, especially at the, yeah. like the county level for at the um, local government. That's how they divide everything up in the state. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is pretty interesting that hmm. this guy was cruising around up here and, you know, it was like a, a little club of people that were tied to MIT and Harvard and Boston, you know, aristocrats. Yeah, yeah, no surprise, no surprise. Yeah, exactly. So hmm. he has this map and I'll, I'll include a PDF of the map from 1882. And it's funny, on the map, he's got on the western side, he's got the Montalban Range. Mm-hmm. And then on the eastern side, he calls that section the Rocky Branch Range. So I don't know if Rocky <laughs> Branch is considered its own range or if that's just how he labeled it. Interesting. At the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's see what what do we have here for Rocky Branch? We have uh not really anything. It's just descending. Anyway, yeah, we can talk about that. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So the yeah, and I'll attach the PDF to the show notes, and then uh, maybe I'll, I'll post something on the Facebook page about you know if anybody's aware of the history there. But I think ultimately, like it was labeled as both, and then I think Montalban just basically took over as the as the primary range. So, mm-hmm. so that's it. William Henry Pickering, and I think this guy eventually went on to become a. A pretty well-known astronomer. I want to say that he might have been involved in creating some of the early, um, the early like astronomer state or, or observatory builders. I think he might have invented how they make, you know, astro astrology or astronomy um, observation areas and in, in secluded areas. So mm-hmm. he's a pretty interesting guy. 
Interesting. There's so many characters out there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, so going back to Mount Isolation, hiking it. So Stomp, what is your, so you can, you can obviously do an out and back via Rocky Branch or you can do an out and back via Glen Boulder or you can do a car spot. What is your, what's your preferred method of getting out there? Honestly, I think it would be a car spot. I think that's probably the the easiest way to do it. If you have another person with a, a second car, that loop that we did up via Glen Boulder down Davis Path to Isolation and then back down Rocky uh, was just perfect. I mean, I can I can envision doing an out and back, but that would be one hell of a day if you were to do it from say uh, Glen Boulder, Rocky Branch, sure. But uh, you just get to see so much more terrain and beauty if you're uh, looping it with two cars. That's my preference. Yeah. Yeah, and I agree. Like, I think the the things that stand out to me about Glen Boulder was there's a couple of moments on that hike that I still think of. You know, one is popping above treeline. You know, because it's sort of like a... Um, oh, yeah. It's always classic. Yeah. And Glen Boulder is interesting because it's like a very steep climb and it's almost like you climb out of a hatch mm-hmm. and then you're above treeline and you have this epic view down in a pinkum notch. Yeah. Then you can look up to the Glen Boulder and and get make your way up to that. So that's a, that's a great moment. And then I also think that after you... When you make your way up to the junction of Davis Path, yeah. and you're in that, you, you know, you can go in a bunch of different directions there. But like just looking at the the, the rock cairns that are spread out for miles, it seems like it's just so epic. Yeah, I think for for more advanced hikers too, you can broaden out that loop like anything else. So on this eastern side of the mountains, you could park at Pinkham Notch, go up Lion's Head, see see Tuckerman's. You could go up Tuckerman's and then bang a hard left and head down Davis. So there's there are a lot of options for larger loops for more advanced people. Yeah, yeah. And that's a good call out, actually. One tricky part about hiking in the winter, it's good to hike isolation in the winter because you don't have to deal with any sort of river and crossings or anything like that. But if you're going to go Glen Boulder, it gets a little bit tricky because that parking lot is sometimes not, not cleared enough true. to park. Yeah, true. So... You can't rely on it being open. I know people get in there and, you know, it's it's hit or miss. But ultimately, like, if you can't get in there and you can't get someone to drop you off at Glen Boulder, you have to park at Pinkham Notch and then take the Deratissima Trail. Which is beautiful. To Unto itself. Yeah. Oh, my God. That trail's yeah. awesome. Yeah, good point. Yeah, it's flat and it's easy. So it's not that big of a deal. But you just have to remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So ultimately, like, the Glen Boulder... If you do a car spot, you obviously you drop a cart, Rocky Branch, start at Glen Boulder, and then go north to south from there. And you know you go up Glen Boulder Trail, then you make your way to the Davis Path Junction, and then what is it down Davis Path to the Isolation Trail? Is that how it works? The Isolation Trail you hit north of Mount Isolation, though, so that banks down uh, west southwest into the Dry River Basin. Correct. Yeah. So you stay on Davis Path once you get get on it. You you stay on Davis Path, and then it, it's a little spur trail off of Davis to get to isolation. Yeah, and Davis just keeps on going south past all those mountains that you mentioned. Stairs, Mountain Mountain Resolution. It splits towards uh, Mount Parker and Langdon and Mount Crawford. It's it's incredible. Yeah, and then the thing about isolation too is once you get to the peak. The views, you know, if you hit it on a day with good views, you've got the whole presidentials right in front of you, which is, I mean, you well, not the whole presidentials. You've got the southern prezies right in front of you. You know, you can't really see the northern part of it, but it's a pretty awesome view. Yeah, I mean, if you think of a horseshoe with Mount Washington being at the top of the, the curve, to the west, you have Mount uh, Jackson, Pierce, Monroe, and then... To the east, you would have the Wildcats, essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think once you ascend down from isolation, then you're heading out. You're mostly a below tree line after that. Mm-hmm. So the whole approach from once you get above tree line on Glen Boulder and then you connect to the Davis Path, you know, you'll you'll take the Glen Boulder Trail and then connect to Davis Path. That whole, I mean, you're above tree line for it's got to be what three, four miles. Yeah for sure it's incredible yeah it's 
Yeah, it's crazy. And then, you know, I think once you, you do dip below tree line, once you get down farther south, I think north isolation is one of the peaks where you'll, you'll start getting a little bit below tree line mm-hmm. um, on the Davis path. But once you come back down, you'll, you know, you'll take a, a cutoff, which is, I don't really know what the name of that trail is, but you'll basically cut off the Davis path and then you'll connect to the isolation trail and then you'll hit Rocky Branch Trail. Right. And there's a little bit of a bushwhack called the Engine Hill Bushwhack, which you may get it, you may miss it. It depends on if it's broken out or not, but it does save you a little bit of time there. And in the winter, which is when we hiked it, there was no issue with water crossings or, or anything like that. It was it was pretty smooth sailing. But typically, I don't know you if you've hiked it in other seasons, Stomp, but like water crossings are, are a big issue there. Yeah, for sure. Back to that bushwhack briefly. Um, that is an alternative, but uh, like in the winter, it may not be broken out. So my wife has done that with other folks. Um, and it can be a bear at times, but it is um, an alternative to the crossings. Um, the South Engine Hill, that's on the F- New Hampshire highest 500 as well. So as you come off of Isolation Trail and then head down Rocky, it's just south of the trail once you cross that first major water crossing onto Rocky Branch. And uh, that would be about maybe quarter mile, half mile bushwhack up to South Engine Hill. Interesting. And then are there, there used to be some shelters in that area. I don't know if they've, or, or campgrounds, have they shut them all down or is there any that are available? I'm not sure of the status as to availability, but there's the, uh, there's a shelter at the junction of stairs, call trail and Rocky branch. Yeah. I know in that region you can, you can definitely camp, I almost like don't even want to give this away because it's probably the most epic camp campground. But there's on Stairs Mountain, there is a campsite right on the peak. You know, it's like a ledge oh. area, and there's like spot for like two tents maybe. Yeah, and then over to the left, you could probably hang. Okay, if you wanted to, maybe squeeze another tent in there. But and then you wake up in the morning, you go out and you have like this most amazing view of the um, the Crawford Notch. Just eat breakfast. It's awesome. Okay. Yeah. There's apparently there's another shelter at the junction of Isolation Trail and Rocky Branch, uh, the Engine Hill shelter. So there's plenty of places. Yeah. Yeah. I see that on the map here. So I mean, there is a fair amount of camping in like this Montalban range is generally not crowded at all. So stealth camping mm. legal, of course. You can you can definitely find a lot of places to check out a good option for vacation week we were just talking about that like what are we going to do if there won't be any people over the next two weeks because new hampshire massachusetts alternate their vacation weeks so it's just going to be mobbed for a couple weeks yeah yeah exactly um couple of call outs specific to isolation like if you were going to do rocky branch out and back a lot of people do that um Typically in the winter, it's a good call. You know, you don't have to deal with the water crossings. The spring, water starts running hot, snow bridges break. That's a very wet area. People get in trouble. And then in the summertime, I think it's a long hike. So if you hit this thing on the day where it's super hot, you know, just make sure that you you load up on water, especially if you go Glen Boulder, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of water options. So that's one of the down down. True. Downsides of doing Glen Boulder in the summer. It's super epic, but there's like no water sources really mm-hmm. in that area. Yeah. True. So. Yeah. The, it, it brings to mind that rescue last um, rainy season that fishing game had to contend with the person that hiked up yeah. to isolation, then couldn't get across the water crossings or just got um, disoriented. I think he ended up hiking south on the Davis path, right? Dumping out onto route uh, 302. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. He got ended up getting a ride and called his friends that were happy that he, he made it out. But yeah. it is a tricky area um, when it's wet. A lot of people pick this as like their last mountain to hike. It could be just because it's a long distance. Um, I I would say don't be that intimidated by Mount Isolation. It's generally like you're not... It's a long distance, but the elevation gains are not too crazy. It's pretty gradual. I mean, Glen Boulder... To Rocky Branch is a hell of a hike. You're talking like 13 miles or something like that. And, you know, there's a lot of elevation gain, but it's not, I mean, you, you shouldn't be too intimidated by it because it is a lot of, a lot of, um, 
distance to get those gains. So that's it, Stomp. So we got a we got a plan to go out there this summer then. Yeah, you know, can we do it from the Dry River side? Because I'm fascinated by that area. I mean, Dry River looks so intense. Yeah, yeah, we could do that. Or I would even do it from the start of, I would do the Cohaus Trail, basically start it on the Davis Path. Yeah. And then go go up from that way and try to do that a two nighter or something. That'd be really cool. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a great area, and if people are asking you where they can go to not see crowds, although we may be screwing that up, but like this is a great area to just not see a lot of people. Hate mail coming our way. <laughs> Hate mail. Yeah, yeah. We get that a lot too. Like people will be like, "Yeah, don't don't give away secrets." Like people need to do their own research. So, sorry, we're gonna do research for you. <laughs> <laughs> so anything else to add on isolation ah just a reflection on that day that we uh came up glen boulder and then down it's it's really neat when you pass glen boulder and you come up to um near bootspur not not at bootspur but you approach bootspur and then you hang a left onto uh davis path that descent is just beautiful lots of open views of the southern presidentials to the west and then you come down to this flat that approaches isolation for at least what say a mile or two it reminded me of uh the kate sleepers you know just you're in the woods and it's not quite a ridge but it seems like a ridge it's a very interesting terrain in there very beautiful yeah, yeah, and I gotta say, like it, that day when I think back of when we we hiked, and this was like in the early days of me doing winter hiking, I very much felt like sort of Ty scenario where he talks about like how he joined those two other guys. I was like, <laughs> shit, I hope I can keep up with oh, them. I hope I don't embarrass myself. I hope I have all the gear. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing that that day, but I was like sort of faking it just because I didn't want to. Like, well, I think that goes for all of us that day. Yeah. Yeah, we were definitely noobs. Yeah, no doubt about it. Like, I think all of us were sort of just starting to get into it, like probably a third of, I mean, it was probably my third or fourth winter hike total, mm -hmm. but I was, I didn't want to show any weakness to you guys because I don't know why, why, why I cared, <laughs> but I just didn't want to show any weakness. I wanted to be like, oh yeah, I know what I'm doing. I'm an expert, but you know, my gear wasn't dialed in and I was wearing heavy stuff, but I, I mean, I had most of my stuff Yeah. okay, but I wasn't. I was not dialed in like I am now for sure. Yeah, yeah. Interesting stuff. Everything Ty talks about, man, it's like, boom, right there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But after that day, you know, it, it solidified a friendship with the three of us, and then it expanded, and we met a bunch of other people. And yeah. like I said in the beginning of this segment, like a lot of the people that are on this show as guests we made connections based on the three of us meeting and then that network, you know, plugging into that network of local hikers, we just started, you know, making more and more friends. And some of them, you know, we don't, we don't talk to as much anymore, but it, it is what it is. So here's a question for you. Is hiking a stronger bond than family? <laughs> I guess it depends on whether or not your family are assholes or not. <laughs> <laughs> that should be a poll on Instagram. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, I don't know. It depends on, I guess it depends on your family situation. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Good point. <laughs> Let's dive into some White Mountains history, shall we? So moving on to segment two, I got a quick one here. This should only take a minute or two, but I always, um, you know, I was, I was reading about William Henry Pickering and Moses Sweetster when we were doing the research for isolation. And I always have this sort of like, and I don't know, I'm going to get a little like philosophical here or political, but I think about how these guys, so these were well-educated men. They lived in Boston. They understood when they came up north that they were looking at a region that, you know, was, was important and it was special. And they realized very quickly that they needed to preserve it. And there were like those early conservationists and the early people that were sort of mapping and tracking this area. And I know that a lot of it was for commercial gain and they were, they were giving like information to the logging companies and stuff like that. So there wasn't, they weren't completely altruistic, but 
I feel like they were smart enough to know that this area was important and that they wanted to sort of document it and, and get the history down. But I don't understand how they never applied that same ideal to the Native Americans that lived in the area. And I understand mm-hmm. that like there was wars going on and things like that, but we know almost nothing about you know, whether there were Native Americans in the area before the white man got there. True. And we don't know really much about their history. Yeah. Um, so I sort of was looking through and I was like, I wanted to do a history topic on a Native American topic. So I was kind of digging through and I found the story of this guy, Metal- Matalak, I guess his Matalak. name is. Have you ever heard of him? Yeah, I have. Um, yeah. You have? Yeah. What do you know about him? Not much. <laughs> That's yeah, why I'm waiting so, for you to talk. <laughs> all right. Well, you but know, I love the name. So anyway, so and again, there's not much known about him. He's supposedly 120 years old. Yeah. So I'll have what he's having, please. Um, so yeah, and again, I doubt he was 120 years old, but he was a he was a Native American that lived. I don't know if you've been up in this area or not, Stomp. But like when you come down, so this is in the Cohas county way far up north when you come down dixville notch yep. you get to sort of an intersection where you can go north up to rangeley maine sure which is route 16 i think or you can just keep going south down to grafton notch which i think is like route 26 or 28 or something like that in that little intersection there there is a um a lake called Umbagog Lake, and I'm sure that I pronounced that wrong. And then um, there is the Magalloway River, which is sort of the northern part of the Androscoggin. So apparently this guy lived in that area. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he was like an early tribesman in the early 1700s through the 1800s. And he was part of the Androscoggin tribe although they had a bunch of different spellings so it was part of the abenaki nation and they inhabited like the upper androscoggin and mcgalloway so this guy apparently there's a this historical green marker sign commemorating him because i guess late in his life he ended up in stewartstown mm-hmm. as kind of a ward of the town so in 1847 he was like a, a ward of the town and supposedly he was 120 years old i'm sure he was old but not that old uh, but he was a hunter, a trapper, and a guide. He was well known in the, by the the region's early settlers. I guess he had some sons that had eventually moved, made their way to Canada. He refused to leave, so he was supposedly one of the last survivors in the region of a band of Abenakis that were inhabiting the Upper Androscoggin. So he was blind, and then I guess the townspeople took care of him you know, in the mid 1800s. And, you know, eventually he died. He's buried in the North Hill cemeteries in, in, in Stewartstown. But he was like one of these last Native Americans that was really in the region before they all left to go to Canada. Mm-hmm. So the Lone Indian of McGalloway, there's a book about him. Amazing. Metalak, Metalak. 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 Yeah. Yeah, there's several spellings of his name, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting, though. Why, I don't, I still can't process, like, why these, these really educated men put so much effort and time in preserving these mountains, but they never put that effort in with the Native Americans, and it just, like, went on and on for our whole history. They never just said, like, you know what, let's just let's just put a ring around where we are and we'll let them live their destiny. I guess we just couldn't do it. Yeah, it's interesting. What a shame. We should do a, a larger deep dive into the history of the indigenous people. Yeah, yeah. We need an expert. So if anybody's an expert on this stuff, let us know. See, look at we'll this. Like the, uh, the Mount Washington Cog Railway has a car named after this individual. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yay, Cog. Nice work. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to ride that car. Right. So, hmm. All right, Stomp. So we get search and rescue news here. We don't have much. You know, this has been one of the dullest winter mission seasons ever that I can recall. But hey, that's okay. Yeah, it's good. It's good to be quiet. It's all snowmobile all the time. So... Massachusetts woman strikes a groomer with snowmobile in Gorham. So this is not a snow groomer. This is like 
I think somebody that was grooming snowmobile trails. What, what does that even mean? I don't even know. What does that mean? Groomers are huge. Um, you know, if you're looking at a trail that's perhaps, you know, 15, 20 feet wide, they'll take up at least two thirds of that trail. And they, you know, there are several different snowmobile clubs throughout the state and they all have their own gear and equipment groomers. And, um, so they'll send them out to groom their section of the region. Um, so when you come across a groomer, you basically have to tail behind them until they pull over and stop just for safety. And then you can pass them with your, your tour or whoever you're with. Um, so you don't want to hit them at a high speed. Let's just say that. Yeah. 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 I'm sure those, those, those things are not cheap. So this happened on um, <laughs> bones are not strong. On Sunday. Yeah, exactly. So, but Sunday around three fifteen, New Hampshire State Police got a call regarding a crash involving a snowmobile and a trail groomer on quarter nineteen in Gorham. So, um, operator of the, of the groomer was a sixty three year old man from Gorham. I can just picture this guy like <laughs> crusty New Hampshire snowmobile grooming driver. I would not want to like run into this guy. So anyway, the and the operator was identified as a forty one year old lady from Massachusetts. Yeah. During the course of an interview with um with both parties, it was determined that the groomer was driving for a local snowmobile club on a, like a hilly section. He was on the right hand side of the trail. And this lady was driving with her riding partner and they came over a little hill. They were hauling ass yeah. and the partner was in front. He was able to slow his machine down enough to go to the side. But here it is. Stop. Here it is. This is the buildup. Wait for it. Wait for it. This is it. Yeah, this is, you know, put the sound effects in. So this is where the lady came over the top of the hill and saw both the groomer and the other snowmobile stopped in the trail. And she tried to stop her machine to avoid striking the groomer. Drum roll. Guess what happened? Oh, this is great. She was unable to do so. So she jumped off of the machine and struck the groomer. Shame. So her empty machine Shame. struck the groomer's snowblade. Isn't that amazing? And fortunately, she was uninjured, uh, but I'm sure there was some damage Shame. there. So she was uh, issued a summons for unreasonable speed. It's so James Bond, like last second jumping off your machine into the woods. And then your, your snowmobile blows up into a huge explosion. <laughs> It's so James Bond. Well, I do feel like, like, and again, I know a lot of people, like, I just feel like there's a ton of people in the world that have, like, very limited situational awareness or spatial reaction. They're just sort of, like, in their own world. Like, some people are very hyper-aware, and they can see, like, five steps ahead about what's going to go on. Yeah. And I think there's some people that are in the moment and they don't think one or two or three steps ahead. And I'm thinking, again, I haven't been on a snowmobile in a long time, but I'm thinking you probably need to think three or four steps ahead when you're on a snowmobile Well, versus just like being in the moment. Absolutely. Especially with those purposeless ups and downs. You have to slow down. Yeah. You got to realize that somebody's going to be zipping around that corner or up and over the other side of that hill. Yeah, so Great story. she did not have a good afternoon. Yeah, well, I think she's okay, though, correct? As far as She's we know. okay, uninjured, um, other than her ego and um, her, her wallet. Good. Did I tell you the story about the person that was on my tour that got injured? No. Dude, I'm no. telling you, it, it happens so frequently. Let me tell you two stories if we have time. Taking a tour out five or six people they were all acquainted so there are several sleds behind me and we're um heading up you you'd love this train mike it's it's this whole valley in between um owl's head mount martha and uh oh, yeah. deception it's just a beautiful area but there are these really dangerous curves and um you know we slow down we take these curves this one person this woman just um it was a left-handed curve we were going uphill Due to the icy conditions, it was pretty treacherous. I don't know what happened, but she just drove right off into the woods, hit a tree, broke her glasses. Her glasses broke. And I, I you know, as a therapist, I, I think she broke her nose. She's probably got two shiners right now. Uh, unbelievable. Um, another one just the other day, crazy. Um, this guy just bolted off, dished his snowmobile, just going slow speed. It just happens. Within half an hour, he's back on his snowmobile and I'm looking in my rearview mirror to check on everybody. 
going straight flat, like 10 miles an hour, he just rolls it over, just out of the blue, just tips over. It lands on both of his legs. Like, what the hell? It's crazy. They're dangerous machines, man. And not only that, it's like when those things happen, you're you're torn between triage. Like, okay, I got to take care of this person, but there are other people that are doing 80 miles an hour coming up trail that are going to wail on all of us. So it's like... Oh, it's so stressful at times. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like pulling over on the side of the highway. Absolutely. Like you, you, you're putting everyone at more risk because yeah. you don't know what kind of Yahoo's going to come driving Yeah, by. and they generally happen on corners. So that's, that's where the most yeah. dangerous sections are. You know, you, you, unless yeah. you're at the apex of that corner and you can see one way or the other, people are going to come around it and just slam into you. It's crazy. Wow. So you, when you take the trail, so you can leave Brenton Woods, you go down Jefferson, you go up Jefferson Notch. That's an option. And then, and then you, that will take you over to buy like Mount Martha and Cherry in that area. Well, here's, if we're going counterclockwise, we're going to go up, we're going to go down the base road and we're going to go up Jefferson Notch to Caps Ridge and then tons of options. You can do uh, Mount Mitten back to Owl's Head and then south back down Mount Cherry Road and all that stuff. But you can also do, you can go to Wombeck. Wombeck has a warming hut that's just below the summit where we would hike. So believe it or not, there's trails up there. Or or if the trails are shitty, you can go south on 11, which takes you towards um, Galehead River, uh, Gale Gale River Trail, Franconia Notch. I took a tour out um, this week that actually, like as you're descending Route 11 towards Franconia, you're looking directly at the Nubble and uh, the Twins right in front of your face from the eastern side. It's like, yeah, just the, I've never seen them from that angle. It's incredible. No. You remember when we hiked Martha and Cherry and we did that, like, we tried to bushwhack to, like, the real peak of Cherry, yeah. and then we went down those carriage roads? Like, sure. I'm assuming you can snowmobile all the way up there, right? It is. It's a one-directional uh, dead end, so you can snowmobile right up there. It's more of an advanced trail, and I pass it all mm-hmm. the time, but I never take anybody up there because it is more challenging. Yeah, there's nowhere, there's nowhere to really like turn around. So you'd have to like lift the snowmobile, right? Well, that's where the, that's where the skill comes in. You you can reverse the things, but we never let these people that we take out on tours do that. We do it for them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's just such a pain in the neck when you have a big group of people. You, Cherry was, yeah, that's just not an option. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Cause I was thinking about that when we did that hike. I was like, oh, you could snowmobile right up here. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, um, that's my my trauma of the week. Yeah, I got one more thing here. So, um, this guy did a research project in 2016, and I got some major problems with it, but I want to read it. So, mm-hmm. how essential are the ten essentials? According to this survey, not very essential. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> let's hear it. I guess so. I'm reading this out. This comes out of Backpacker Magazine, so credit to them. But I guess the 10 essentials were originally compiled by the Seattle Mountaineers in the 1930s, but it was never really printed until like the 70s when it was in this Mountaineering Magazine. But they had like they wanted to, they created the 10 essentials to enable the hikers to respond to emergencies and to safely spend the night outside if needed. Um, And then it also, I guess just sort of general, you know, safety overall. They wanted to make sure that they had this so everybody knows like the basics. But yeah. um, this researcher, Dr. Nicholas Daniel, he is a director at Dartmouth Hitchcock Wilderness on a Steel um, Medicine Fellowship. So, or I guess he's somehow related to Dartmouth Hitchcock and. He did a study, I guess they surveyed like about 900 people or so on Mount Monadnock. And they surveyed these day hikers in 2016 and asked which items they carried, what kind of um, adverse events they experienced, and then how satisfied they were with their hike. So I don't, I would not pick <laughs> Mount Monadnock as like a, as a good sort of like, um, Barometer. population of, to reflect hikers but yeah. anyway they they said basically that 70 76 percent of the hikers reported some adverse events such as being hungry or thirsty or temperature or needing rain gear 
Uh, but like almost 90% of them said that they uh, were prepared. So I guess it was like 18% that... What, 90% yeah. said they was subjectively they thought they were prepared? Yeah, yeah. There was like 76 said that they had had some kind of hunger, thirst, rain, or temperature issues, but like... 90 almost 80 89 90% said that they were they were prepared for it. I got it. Okay. Um you know, and most of these hikers were pretty satisfied with their hike regardless of how many essentials they carried. Um and I don't really know what that means by satisfied. Um <laughs> but they said that like the more the the people that were more likely to report adverse events actually had a larger number of essentials in their backpack. So hmm. those hikers carried four to ten items, had roughly eleven to sixteen percent chance of experiencing an adverse event, roughly twice that of hikers who carried one to three items. So for me, I'm reading this and I'm just thinking that like the people that didn't carry a lot of like essentials were just blissfully they're just blissful idiots <laughs> that didn't know any better. And I think that that's probably what this comes down to. Yeah. I mean, it just it just makes me think that there's so much room for actual research, like this hiking pole study that we're trying to do with Andy Cannon. There's so much room for research. Like some of the some of the the ten essentials may be outdated, maybe not. That's why you do research, and that's why you figure it out. It'd be neat if they could actually, you know, gather data from the people that uh, are the subjects of rescues and searches and things like that to actually get some information. Because who knows. It could be some, uh, there could be room for modification. Let's just say that. Yeah, exactly. And this is like self-reported, like being uncomfortable on trail, which we've all been uncomfortable on trail. Yeah, right, so right. it's a little bit different. I, I like your idea of like, let's actually, and I do a little bit of this with the research that I've done is like, even though the numbers are not that big, you know, you've got like 150 incidents a year. Oh, yeah, that's a lot of data. You can break down those incidents to say, like, one of the things that stands out to me that's most obvious is of those incidents that are reported in the news, almost half of them are lower leg injuries, which not all of them could be addressed this way. But one of the things that's not in the 10 essentials that should be is a field splint. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if you bring a splint with you, even if like you never use it, like maybe you'll come upon someone that needs it. Like maybe ha if you have 150 people that have injuries, half of those have lower leg injuries. Of those 75 people that are on trail, maybe 30 of them could have used a splint to get themselves out instead of calling for a rescue. Yeah. So for me, it's worth it, even though it's a small percentage. Or push it even further. Like how about a single hiking pole <laughs> just to, to use as a yeah. crutch if you hurt your ankle? I mean, there's yeah, so much yeah, exactly. room for, for research and data. Yeah. Or even like, um, you know, like I know Huntington Ravine caches like safety equipment, like maybe, and again, leave no trace always comes to mind when you think about this stuff, but hell, maybe it makes sense to put a couple of boxes on Franconia Ridge in the loop, you know, to, to give people like free access to headlamps if they need them. You know, because that seems to be another issue where you get a lot of people that make it to Greenleaf Hut and they don't have a headlamp and lights are starting to go out. Yeah. If you maybe if you had a couple of like safety boxes where you could you know you could access headlamps or something, I don't know how that would work, but like maybe that that might save people. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Great article. Yeah. If yeah. Uh, if the listeners have any input on what you think should be or should not be in that ten essentials list, let us know. We can discuss it a bit. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. The, the and so much, this has changed so much, but like at the end of the article, the, the, the research is like, I always recommend carrying a cell phone. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. It's, it's almost generational, it seems. But damn, if yeah. this list started back in the 1830s, is that what you said? 1830s? No, 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 no. It started in the 1930s. Oh, okay. God, I was going to say, like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. But it was like a, only a local mountaineer. Like, it was like for 40 years, it was just like this local mountaineering club that was like, these are the tenants. It was sort of like, you know, SAR team has their, like, gear list. It was sort of like that to say, like, here's the 10 essentials that you need. And eventually, like, it was published in a magazine in the 1970s, and then that's where it took off, I'm assuming, like, clubs like the AMC and companies like REI like embraced it and then that's 
that's how it took off. Yeah, interesting. But it took off out west, so it's a whole different geography, different climate, somewhat. I mean, there's so many factors. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think ultimately what he said was he was... Uh, he said you could sort of boil it down to four essentials, which is water, food, extra clothing, and a medical kit. But I still say like a headlamp you need. Um, you know, I, I take them all, honestly. Like I just sun protection, shelter, uh, map and compass, knife. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wouldn't Paracord. do any of Insulation in the winter. Tarp. I mean, come on. There's so much you could add to this list or, or deduct. There were so many things that yeah. are so you know what the tie wraps. For you know what the sakes. one, yeah, the one that I would say like is it, for me is the least useful would be fire. Like I don't see necessarily why I would use a fire in any situation. I'd much rather use other alternatives. And not to mention, like so many times, like in our environment, like you couldn't light a fire in the winter. Yeah, it's it's possible. I guess you but could. I mean, but, I mean, people are leaning towards, you know, carrying a small stove and, you know, propane, that type of thing versus carrying yeah. the, the flint to hope, hopefully get some wet, damp wood started. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's really cool. So anyway. So that's it, Stomp. This is a short episode for us. We did well. <laughs> Back to the early days. We're clocking yeah. in around 110. Ooh. One. 110, very good. Yeah, and um, next week we will have uh, Jill and Carter on, so we'll be learning about hiking with kids, and hopefully you know, you'll, we inspired you to check out the Montalban Range and Mount Isolation. Yeah, until next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information on slasserpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until next time, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Nealon, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared, and I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.